you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money Podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, Portfolio Managers with Farrakhan Capital Management, Inc. All right. Josh Shellick and Matt Kempton here with your next episode of Bare Naked Money. We've given Colin the day off, and I think Matt's going to be uh, a much more attractive and much better version of Colin. I won't say anything there. Big shoes to fill. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we both know I carry this podcast most of the time. <laughs> All right. With that said, uh, we're we're looking forward to having Matt on the on the pod today. And Matt uh, is a, a valued member of the Vericam team now. Uh, joined us how long ago, Matt? It's been about four months now. No, no, two two and a half, but two uh, months. You know, who's counting? Time flies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, anyway, today we have an article from LinkedIn that we've dug up that has 34 trends to watch out for in 2024, and this is from a variety of of experts uh, responding through the LinkedIn platform. So we came across this article and thought, hey, there's some interesting interesting fodder here, interesting food for thought. So let's pick out some of the the pieces, the thoughts that we think are most interesting and most worthy of comment from uh, this article. And so Matt and I have both gone away and picked several of these that we thought to be fascinating or at least worthy of discussion. So what do you have first, Matt? Well, I've got, uh, again, a few here that we picked out. And and like you say, they put together a good list here. And I thought we'd start with the first item actually on the list, the big topics for 2024, a Canadian entrepreneurial renaissance is on its way. Um Maybe I'll start with my thoughts on this one. And I, I guess my, my first thought on this one is I hope so. I really hope so. This is a, an extremely important piece to, to economic growth, uh, is having a strong entrepreneurial base and, uh, and commitment to being an entrepreneur and that, that uh, feeling of wanting to start a business and, and, and taking that risk is so important to, the, to our economy here in Canada. And it's been, it's been lacking. For a period here, and we've started to started to fall behind. And actually, in the article, they cite uh, a pretty concerning stat: there are 100,000 fewer entrepreneurs in Canada than compared to 20 years ago, despite a rising population here in Canada. So that is that's concerning. Now, uh, I I hope we'll start to see some change there. Um, now, will it all happen in 2024? I I doubt that, but I I hope the beginnings of it uh, will because. We uh we certainly could use more of it, and uh, as often happens, sometimes points of stress in the economy are those periods where people either from a position of being laid off or, or they just sort of reassess things and say it's time for me to take my experience and, and go out on my own here. So maybe maybe that'll start to fuel some. But maybe Josh, I'll turn it over to you just for some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, my my first thought, and I'll ask you the question: How much do you think? public policy has played into this, I'll call it a little bit dramatically, the demise of the entrepreneur here in Canada over the last couple of decades? I think pretty significantly. I mean, even going back to, you know, recent federal elections, you know, the competitiveness of Canada or the idea of being an entrepreneur was not discussed at all. And despite it, in my mind, being such an important topic. And so we're not positioned, or we haven't been positioned in a great way to encourage entrepreneurship um, you know, maybe that's changing some with some of the you know federal programs that are, are around uh, startups, around clean energy, and this sort of thing that are being created. So there, there maybe there's some incentive that's that's being put in place. But there's it's one thing to have incentive, but we 
we might lack that culture of risk, that culture that failure is okay that they have in the U.S. So I don't know if that starts at the policy level, it starts at the school level, or it starts at the, the community, the household level. But there are some, there's some fundamental differences between us and let's say a more entrepreneurial nation like the U.S. Um, that you know we don't necessarily need to be like our our cousins to the to the south in all ways, but this is a way that they they embrace entrepreneurship in a way that we don't. Yeah, it's interesting. Someone told me one time something similar to you. So this is an American just said, you know, we we on the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial side, we'll 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 fail, we'll move on and start something new, and there's really no stigma associated with that. So it is maybe a deep seated cultural thing. I've been thinking about the policy changes, especially on the tax side that have come in place in Canada over the last 10 or so years. And it seems to be a regular and consistent, I don't know, again, attack is maybe a little bit dramatic, but um, they're definitely looking at at entrepreneurs and people running small businesses and those that they would call maybe the high income earners. And looking to them to to pay more taxes. And I won't say more than their fair share because everybody's got their different interpretation of what fair is, but uh, certainly there's there's split income rules that have changed over the last uh, 10 or so years. And then more recently, um, uh, rules with uh, all the alternative minimum tax that can kind of sort of in a veiled way target the business owners uh, pretty significantly perhaps. And then the higher tax rates, there, there seems to be a consistent disincentive from a financial perspective for those entrepreneurs to go out on their own. And uh, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, so many things in our world are economically driven. And when you have maybe an overhang, if we want to call it that, uh, that's that's hurting the economics of being an entrepreneur, uh, that's definitely got to factor in a little bit, I would think. You're very right. Uh, I think that's that's a big part of it. And of course, the you know when you have a family business, as many businesses are, especially here in Canada, when you hear, you know, at the dinner table that that change in policy and that that change in the approach of how we're thinking about business owners, it it might make it less well, less encouraging for the next generation to say, well, I want to take part in that too, in the life that you lived in the business that you ran, because it might be different for me if government's going to put these approaches in versus how how you experience it. So that. That alone, you're right. Policy can have a big impact. Yeah. So moving on here, one of the the items that I thought was interesting, and uh, of course we had when we we're talking about trends for 2024, we had to have an AI one in here, and there were several AI items on this list. But the one that I found most interesting was the headline here: "Powering the AI boom will become as important as regulating it." So the point here in the article was that. The amount of energy consumption by these AI data centers is immense. And it had suggested that over 1% of uh, the global energy consumption was actually by data centers, which is pretty significant, I think. When I saw that number, I was pretty surprised by it. Uh, but it got me thinking, not so much that I find this uh, specific aspect super interesting, but when you think about the companies that are behind this AI push, some of the largest companies, the most successful companies, we'll call them in the world, ones with the deepest pockets, which I think we can say unequivocally. It got me thinking, maybe this is the clean energy revolution that we need because invention is often uh, out of necessity 
And if these companies are looking to power their AI and thinking, well, to power my, my AI, I need to have a cleaner, more sustainable source of energy. And then they start to deploy some of their hundreds of billions of dollars of capital towards this problem and some of their, their brilliant minds that they have. Well, maybe this is it. So do you think there's any legs to that idea? I mean, I think there absolutely is. And I mean, just recently I heard Microsoft announced that they might be pursuing a nuclear strategy to to help power their their database, their AI. And so these are these companies have gotten so big and so there's such a talent base behind them that maybe they alone can really help push and push some of this clean energy agenda just for their for their power needs and their power needs that are, you know, need to be they need to be sustainable, they need to be there for them uh, and accessible when when you know at all times and so they might have to just sort of take that into their own hands to an extent yeah almost like accidentally creating the clean energy re revolution for the greater population for uh, really a personal need but I, I i think that's that's how the world works a lot of the times right um unfortunately we're probably not going to really endeavor in this this you know pure clean energy um, path until it becomes economically sensible to do so. And driving down costs is is how you're going to do that. And hopefully some of these companies come up with something brilliant that's uh, solving a big problem for us. You're right. Hopefully some of these entrepreneurs will uh, push the agenda <laughs> up in here. <laughs> yeah. Way to go. So maybe next uh, out of these these big topics, one that looked uh, one looked pretty interesting. In fact, it's sort of a combination of two, but they're, they're certainly related. And, and one of them being that living to age 100 will become a lot less rare um, and then tied into that. But we'll take the focus off living long and into living well. So, you know, I, I think this has been, you know, been an observable trend for a while. People, there are many people who have now reaching that mark of 100 or beyond. My grandmother is one of them. Um, and but that, you know, there's one thing to live long, but to live well is is important for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, this matters for entitlement policies. It matters for housing. It matters for financial planning. For us, I mean, think about building a plan for a client. It's, uh, you know, it, it makes a big difference if we're projecting to age 85, 95, or, or 100. So these these items are becoming more more real and, and more something to focus on, but they have huge impacts to society as people begin to live longer. Yeah. So as you talk about the financial planning implications, what what do you think what do you think we should do as advisors about this? Do you think it's as simple as projecting to age hundred and some of the financial planning that we do, or is there something more specific or maybe more targeted that that we can do to help? I mean, I, I think first step is just through that risk management component to say it, you could you may or may not outlive your money. And so it's not it's we can't you, just because prior generations didn't live to 100, we shouldn't assume that they won't. There's a low probability of it, but we think about tail risks all the time and that, that can become one of those. So it's uh, it enters its way into our into our world that way, just to say we, we might now need to think about money lasting longer, changing investment strategy potentially to, to help it get there, managing spending in a different way, tax in a different way, your ultimate estate in a different way. So it does creep in in a lot of ways to, to, longer, to longer living individuals. Um, I don't know, were there any other thoughts you had on how we might become involved? Well, it's one of the things that I often have conversations about with people, especially around retirement age, is while I'm retired now, I think I should get a lot more conservative with my investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I think this this filters into one of the conversations that I have a lot is 
your time horizon, if you're 60 or 65 and you've just retired, your time horizon is not necessarily short. For a portion of your investments, yeah, probably because you might be drawing on it a little bit more relative uh, re, uh, in the near term, but your actual time horizon is still quite long at that point. And if you're talking about an age 100, then your time horizon is still very long. So this mentality that, and and part of this is maybe this uh, old adage that your bond uh, portion of your portfolio should be directly related to your age, That that's a mentality that's existed for some time. Uh, I, I think we need to start to break that a little bit and, and uh, really unfortunately, maybe take a little bit more of a growth focus with clients' portfolios as they're as they're entering their retirement years. That probably means they're going to be subject to a little bit more volatility in their portfolios through their retirement years, but it's maybe going to be necessary as people contemplate longer lives. Um, the other thing that I, I think is a concern for a lot of clients that I talk to is long-term care expenses. So I might not be spending a whole lot of my retirement nest egg right now, but I'm worried about when I'm age 85 or age 90 that I'm going to be spending $10,000 a month on, on a long-term care facility. And that's a real concern too. So there's a lot of things that factor in here. I, I think in my experience, uh, speaking with people, the quality of life thing as well is is huge. I don't think, most people don't come in and say that, I want to live to this so-and-so age. They just want to live a healthy and fulfilling life for as many years as they have. So I, and I don't know how we deal with that. Cause I think as you get to a greater number of people living to age hundred, you're going to have a greater number of people uh, living in, in maybe unwell situations health-wise as well. It's a, it's a bit of a, a moral and ethical and philosophical dilemma, just as much as it is a financial one, I think. You're very right. So we've got our piece of it we hope to be able to help with. But I, I so agree with your point there on just those th rules of thumb, which, you know, we often need, we need to be cautious of anyway in investing, but the bond one around retirement and people are, that one is just one that feels really ingrained in people's minds that you flip your portfolio to a more fixed income oriented one uh, at that, at that day of retirement almost seems to be the, the way the rule is structured. Yeah. But like you say, your retirement period, retirement periods now are long. And in many cases, they might be longer than the period that you saved. Your contribution period might ultimately be shorter than yep. the period that you that you draw down from. And so longevity risk might be your bigger biggest risk versus volatility risk. And so we, those conversations are so important. And they change with interest with with you know different different investment environments. And so we are in one now where well, bonds certainly are more attractive. There is still, you know, the the long-standing reality that equities outperform bonds, and when we think about that long period, we're trying to make sure there's funds available for and income available for. You know, we we need to think about risk in a different way. For sure, yeah, and I think that's a good way to to look at it is maybe on the risk side of things. Like, what are your risks? And you said longevity risk is greater than volatility risk, and I'd add inflation risk is greater than volatility risk at that point too. And both of those things, uh, stocks, equities are going to do a better job dealing with than bonds for sure. That's right. Yeah. So as we pivot from death to birth here, one of the articles that I found interesting or the points that I found interesting was that uh, fertility gimmicks will fade and nations will get more real about the population decline. So I don't really think this is a 2024 story for me. It's more of a longer term thing. 
uh, like decades into the future. But population decline is problematic. Uh, we've seen it be problematic for a country like Japan for many years now, and we're potentially going to see it become problematic for a country like China, who has a, a very rapidly aging population. And just coming back to economics, macroeconomics 101, the way that you grow the economy is through a few different ways, either technological development, more capital, so more computers and technology and things like that, or more people. And if we're taking one of those factors out, the more people, it's going to be harder for us to, to grow economically. So just big picture and long term, it is, I would say, a concerning trend. And I know even here in Canada, we're we're thinking of ways to try to get that birth rate up because uh, fortunately for us, we still have a, a huge uh, populace of, of immigration every year, which is helping us grow our uh, our people base, our, our workforce, but not every country has that that benefit. No, that's right. And I mean, for every person we take in, of course, another country is losing that young person. So on a global net basis, there's a real, there's a real concern here. And, you know, will... AI or productivity technology increases, will they, will they be able to potentially offset this this very clear trend in in you know birth rates declining? I, mean, I guess we have to bet on hoping so, unless policy can really change on encouragement of of uh, you know more children to to be you know us to be having more children. There's a like I say, right down to economics 101. There's a concern here. Yeah, I like that you pulled AI into it. I wonder how many times we can reference AI on this 2024 <laughs> Trends podcast. <laughs> Take a shot every time. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> All right, so on to the next one here. Um, the next one, and uh, you know, a bit of a bold call, maybe to say that 2024 will be the year that private equity gets reined in. Um, you know, we started to see this. You know, I guess define rain and started to see a slowing in certainly deals and in multiples in private equity. So it, it hasn't been the shining star that it was for for a very long period. Uh, it's you know still attracting fundraising, still seems to be going reasonably well, and it's still you know it's still a big parse portion of allocation of certainly institutional and pension type portfolios. Um, but will I guess is it the case that it might show a bit more that the results that we've seen from private equity have been so benefited by a decline in interest rates and just adding debt onto businesses and that that in itself making, you know, just sort of juicing returns in a sense where maybe they themselves haven't improved the operations so much and they've benefited from a trend that isn't really in place anymore. And so for those newer funds or, you know, sort of maturing funds, do they do they exit in the, in a way that they could have before? And do we continue to see those those good results, or is the asset class going to, is there going to be some more clarity into what's really happening there? And overall, some, you know, the story won't be as rosy. I, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, my question is, hasn't this already happened? Hasn't private equity already been reined in? I looked at some of the numbers just preparing for this because I, I had this question, but in, uh, in, in 2022, the, Deal funding was it was a insignificant decline throughout much of the calendar year, and I looked back to a peak in uh, the third quarter of twenty one, and there was about three hundred billion uh, of deal flow, according to Ernst and Young, on that quarter, and that declined to about a hundred billion by the end of twenty twenty two on the quarter. So that's a, a third of the deal flow over the course of about eighteen months. That to me is already re reined in. 
I think you're right. So I think maybe that's the first step. And so you, we, we, but they do have uh, stats I've seen. Dry powder remains pretty significant that sits on the sideline. And where the real showing might be is in these funds that have some, you know, sort of they're nearing their seven-year period of investment and an exit is necessary. That's when we really might get some clarity into, well, what, what valuation are you actually going to be able to, to sell that at, whether it's in the public markets or to another private investor. And that, that, at that point, we might see a real sort of revision lower of returns because you're right, deals have slowed. Maybe that's step one. Deals slow. They can't find as many you know, attractive type deals. They can't use debt in the way that they could have once done. And then what's the next step? What's the next shoe to drop? And then where, do, where does that uh, ultimately play out? So explain that to me and our listeners. So you're talking about a seven-year window. So what exactly do you, do you mean by that? I think you're referring to that's sort of the uh, the typical holding period for some of these investments, and then people look to get their money back. Is this, is that kind of right? Yeah. So when private equity typically sort of steps in, they'll do so with the with the mind that they're going to sell this business. It's not permanent capital. It's generally we're going to step in, improve operations, make some adjustments, create some efficiencies, and then hope to exit. Maybe roll up a few businesses into one, and then it, hope to find a, a a buyer within you know seven year period or less. And that's what that's often what investors ask for from the start is we want our money returned in this point. And so for those assets that sit in those portfolios that have been with us sort of five or six year tenure, um, you know, it's getting to the point where something needs to happen and who's the buyer for those. Now I've seen some interesting things where some of these bigger private equity firms are creating additional funds that are buying from their first funds and are saying, now this is a permanent <laughs> fund and we're going to create a market. We're going to create liquidity here. So, you know, some some creative measures might happen, but broadly across the market, I, I think we're going to see a trend of, I think it's likely that we see a trend, maybe it's interest rate dependent to an extent that, you know, deals will come out at lower multiples and, and maybe it's not, uh, maybe the, some of the luster falls off private equity for a period here. Yeah, that's not a conflict of interest at all, eh? Just the new fund to buy from an old fund? Like that sounds like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Yeah, you're very right. You want to prop up multiples, we'll just sell to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Whole thing's in well. Who's getting screwed on that end? I, I don't know. But uh, probably the company is going to work out fine. One of the, the investors on either end is getting screwed on that one, I would say. Yeah, very true. All right, so moving on here. I found this one interesting. The statement that will move away from what they call a growth at all costs economy. And I'm just going to push back on this one right away. I'd, I don't know. I, I just don't. I just don't understand the article. I'm not sure that I buy this idea. So the the principle of this statement was that we are going to to start as a society, as a globe, as a, a country, start looking at things a little bit differently than just hey, we need economic growth, we need progress. You could maybe argue that that's happening a little bit right now, but I will push back on the article with this. Have you ever heard of the quality of life approach in Canada, Matt? No. Okay. So this article says that like Canada and like other countries like New Zealand, there will start to be a push for more of a quality of life or balanced approach to progress. We'll call it progress. I've never heard of this. I'm a Canadian. You're a Canadian. We're pretty plugged in. We've never heard of this comment or this, this, uh, this statement. This report was apparently published two and a half years ago. So if we live in Canada, we've never heard of this quality of life approach here. 
how are other countries going to really push for an adoption of of this type of of mentality? I just don't get it. I don't see it. I will continue to believe that we're going to be economically driven, and maybe this is my bias as as somebody in finance, but I'll continue to b- believe that we're going to be economically driven because that's to me what provides the greatest incentive for people. I don't see people just saying, you know what, let's throw away some money. We'll not care about that as much. I just want to save the environment for a little while, not in aggregate anyway. I mean, I think you're very right. And maybe going back to economics 101, I, I think that if, if the standard of living improves across the nation and that GDP per capita steps up, and if the middle class is, is healthy, then I think that over time has proven that, hey, the well-being of the nation is improving. And so I think that's the way we thought about it for a very long time. And this seems to say, hey, there's some new metrics that we should be bringing in. But uh, I'm old school in a sense. I think those old ones are pretty good. Yeah. So you brought this one to the table. Expect an unretirement wave in 2024. What do you see from this uh, this article, and, and what interested you the most? Well, part of what uh, what's I think so interesting about this one is is it's, it speaks to a bit to our role. And when we think about when we do retirement planning for clients, I mean, it's you know at step one, it's largely financial. It's just to say, have you you've saved enough or will you have saved enough to retire at this time to then live the lifestyle you you hope to live whatever those expenses might bring to and then to leave in a state that you you hope to and if that's i think step one there and that's the financial piece of it but retirement is not just a financial decision it's an emotional decision and for, for some maybe more than others for some their job is their identity uh, and that's maybe true to on a sort of a spectrum of for for, for some or for all and and just the lifestyle change that occurs to your social circle to to all of these areas when you make that decision to retire i i, I find we often become almost more of retirement coaches with with clients so we, we they have to sort of move beyond okay it financially you can retire but what will that look like for you to live well and for you to enjoy it and a lot of people a purpose is a big part to that as well and i, I think without those discussions some might just sort of pull the trigger and say we're going to retire and then find themselves in retirement and maybe a bit lost. So I think that is uh, you know, there's an unretirement wave that might occur just for even in a part-time basis for this for that seeking of purpose, but also a recognition that things have gotten more expensive and there there might occur as well for for purely financial reasons. If if potentially planning wasn't put in place in the on the forefront, on the front end, or if you know, circumstances just change in such a way that they they might need to come back to work. So I think this might be something we start to see more of, and uh, over the next little while is is, is some stepping back into the workforce, maybe only on a part time basis, just for the for the enjoyment of it. But that uh, I think we will start to see more of this. Yeah, I read through the article, and one of the comments there that caught my eye was saying that the majority of baby boomers expect to work until they physically can't, and I said. I- Come on, the majority of baby boomers are going to work until they're basically falling falling down on the job, literally. And I went to the link, the, the survey that they had or a study that they had supposedly done, and I didn't find any reputable information from this that actually suggested that was the truth. But uh, I don't know. Maybe there, I, I'm sure that there are some people out there that are struggling a bit financially in retirement. There's There's almost no doubt about that, especially with, as you said, inflation where it is. Um, but I, th- I think to your first point, and this may be as much of a 
a emotional and purpose and lifestyle decision as it is a financial one for people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case. Um, so, touching on a couple more that we that we haven't yet, and this is just uh, just maybe a bit of a fun one. I'll, I'll pick this one up here just because it's it's just been fascinating to watch the changing in this space. Expect a reckoning among streaming sites. Uh, I think we've all. You know, we're all either subscribing to one or many of these, of these, of these, uh, you know, platforms, whether it's Netflix, Crave, or or multiple of them. And if you want to find one program or one show you like, it's it's over here, and then another might be over here. And if you're trying to stream sports, well, you have to go over here. And if you want to watch this specific game, it's over here. And it was I can't remember exactly which comedian it was, but there was one that pointed it out very well to say, we we've all canceled this thing that we got so sick of in cable and then we've moved over to this area that's now transitioning to his place and i think the next step is they're going to bundle that all together and we're going to be right back to where we were <laughs> and it feels like that's so true going, eh? we're going full circle here like yeah it's uh it, it's just incredible and all these companies are spending so much money on this on content because it's content is king um but it's becoming hard as a as a user to say well where do i want to where do i i can only have so many of these subscriptions where am i subscribing to and am i canceling and then signing up over here because I want to just watch this specific show, it's becoming pretty hard to to navigate and to use. Yeah, now, and that's no doubt. I, I, it seems like exactly what this guy said, this comedian said, we're going to end up kind of in the same spot that we once were. But how many streaming services do you have in your house? Well, I, I have two and then one that I may or may not have a password to. So. <laughs> okay, okay. Basically the same on yeah. our end. Yeah. But it seems like, it seems like things are consolidating in in the industry because there again to your point there's only so many that you can actually have have access to and pay for and it gets kind of frustrating when like you said there's one specific uh, show that you want to watch that's on uh, some streaming service that you don't have uh, but I I've been hearing recently so it, it seemed like initially all these the the content creation companies said we're going to go start our own streaming service. And we're going to have a separate subscription for this. And now it's kind of reversing where Netflix has proven to be sort of the dominant um, the dominant service. So I've heard recently that both HBO and Disney have reneged on everything being on their own platform entirely and are going to put some of their content back onto to Netflix as well going forward. So maybe uh maybe just a, a continued consolidation towards what we had on cable again yeah everything goes full circle yeah the 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 sad thing is the ads right that's the thing that that i really don't want to have back is commercials on my my streaming so i guess you could pay for the premium services or whatever that don't have them but if we go back sort of again, totally full circle, and then it's just like an on-demand television again, on-demand cable, then that'll be kind of a frustrating circle to go in, I'd say. Yeah, we might have to go outside at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nobody wants that. <laughs> what are the kids going to do? <laughs> well, maybe on the topic of kids, and maybe a last one that's, I think, kind of fun is that uh, another one of these expectations for 2024 is that universities will view the creator economy as a visible career path. And as a new father with a 14-month-old at home, this is something I'd never really thought about before, but I, in the last little while, I'd seen some stats on, it was interviewing high school 
uh, high school students on what they wanted to be in the future, what their what their hopeful career was. And I couldn't believe the percentage that went towards being a creator, being a YouTube star, being being any of these areas that no one of our vintage ever would have considered a job. It wasn't a job, but now yeah. it's it's a job. So uh, is it is it a job, Matt? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, some people, some people do very well. There's yeah. no question. And uh, I guess to being an entrepreneur, it's a, an easy step in low capital risks. You're an entrepreneur, um, but only so. There's only there's only so much bandwidth we all have, and we just walked through that in our last our last conversation there. So only so many people can do well in this area, um, and it's certainly not everyone in the high school graduating class of of 2024 here. So um, I I think it's become more of a job. It is it's a real thing. But I I worry that that is we as a society are saying our young people are saying that's exactly what we all want to be this one thing. What about being a doctor? What about being a lawyer? What about being a portfolio manager? Yeah. So it, the the fact that is bringing the university and education system into it, I, I I thought was quite interesting, and I wonder. If this develops, maybe by the time your son is of university age, this develops into something where it's like going to acting school or going to art school. You're going to content creation school, whatever that looks like. So I, I guess that's where it's going potentially. And it seems to be maybe a little bit more of an accessible way, a little bit more tangible for people of that, again, that that vintage, that age to you know, here's my path to stardom. Instead of being a movie star, I'm going to be a content creator. Yeah, you're very right. This might be the, the new movie star, but is university the right place to go to to learn that? I mean, who are the real experts in this? Well, they're the content creators. They're the ones who have the proven audience. They're the ones who have the proven viewers, not necessarily the professors of marketing and maybe other areas that are just going to have to learn this from the creators. So is the real way to learn how to be good at this by through YouTube, through watching yeah. classes there. Um, and so do I need to put any more money into my RESP or am I done contributing <laughs> here? <laughs> Just get YouTube premium, no ads, and I'm all set. There you go. Start start them <laughs> young. Start them young. <laughs> so as we kind of wrap up here, Matt, is there anything trend-wise that you see coming in 2024 that you didn't see represented on this list at all? Oh, that's a great question. Come back to me with that one. Let me know if you have one. Well, you know what? I, I didn't. I've I've been thinking about it. And if you asked me off the top, it would have to be something. It's it's boring and it's overdone, but it would have to be something related to AI. I, I, I think this, I think we're just in the the fledgling stages of this this evolution or revolution, if we want to call it that. So I think there's going to be a lot to come in that space. It seems like the trend accelerated in 23, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it accelerate for another couple of years. Um, I think there's a lot to come in that space. Yeah, I'll latch on to you with that one. I, I, I think the same, that, that that space, it's moving quickly. And uh, I mean, I, I just read the chat, GPT, was, it's one year old. So the one-year anniversary, and look how far it's coming in one year. In one more year, I think we're going to be in a very different place and hopefully it's that and other aspects of ai are helping towards productivity and helping for the good versus uh, what some predict are you know concerns of it yeah one more year we won't be here we won't need to be here we'll have <laughs> ai doing these podcasts for us <laughs> exactly thanks matt
All right, thanks, Josh. If you're breaking a sweat trying to figure out what your financial advisor is talking about, you're not getting the service you need. You probably hate trying to get an answer from them, but you also think moving your accounts will be a headache, and it might be. But working with DontRockTheBoatWealthPlanning.com or .ru isn't exactly stress-free, is it? Call us. We will demystify the world for you. Vericon Capital Management, Inc. is a registered portfolio manager in all of Canada except Manitoba. So sorry, Manitoba. Nothing in this podcast should be considered as a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell a particular security. Statements made by the portfolio managers are intended to illustrate their approach and are meant for information and entertainment purposes only. This should not be construed as legal, tax, or accounting advice. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.